Anyway, uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 24. Our topic, you should be so in love with Jesus that you have no fear of men who persecute you in order to get you to deny him and hide the message of the gospel. The title of our message, I'm so excited, I just can't hide him. I'm about to lose my life and I think I like it. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thanks so much for giving us a, a place to meet and, and for bringing us together this morning. And as always, Lord, I, I'd like us to have a sense that we're here by your divine appointment. Maybe it's our regular habit. Maybe we don't even think much about it, Lord. We just come. But, but we've been invited here by the Holy Spirit who wants to teach us about Jesus Christ in your word, you say that when we study your word and hear about the Lord, it's like looking into a glass darkly, but we're being changed from glory to glory as we see his image revealed. And so if nothing else, Lord, this morning, we wanna see the image of Jesus Christ as he comes through this text. And though there's, there's many hard sayings here, Lord, they're from a, a point of view that you know what's best for us, you have a, a, a good heart towards us, you want to build into us, Lord, all that is good and wonderful and lasting, and I pray that we would receive it that way. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, and all who agreed said, amen. Are you a Christian, or are you a Christ follower? Well, that's a distinction that's being made more and more today, and often the latter term, Christ follower, is replacing the former term, Christian. Now, before you pick a preference, I should explain to you that Christ followers consider themselves edgy and hip. They think of Christians as shallow churchgoers who wear suits and ties, have Christian bumper stickers on their cars, and prefer the King James Bible. And so it's kind of a, it's kind of a hipster thing. I say we go even further as hipsters and adopt an entirely new term, cross-takers, it's from this statement by Jesus. He says, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. So before he tells you to follow after me, Jesus says, take your cross. Even though Jesus' statement about the cross doesn't occur till near the end of this chapter, I think it controls everything else he said. It's that powerful. It was the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that he mentioned the cross to his followers. In their culture, at that time, it would have been an absolutely astonishing statement. The cross was Rome's instrument of capital punishment for the worst criminals. If you were convicted, you'd be forced to take your cross. The beam would be strapped across your shoulders and you'd be made to carry it to the place of crucifixion outside the city where it would be affixed to the upright post after your wrists were nailed to the beam. A third nail would be driven through your ankles or your heels into the post. The next time someone refers to themselves as a Christ follower, one-up them and tell them that you are a cross-taker. That is, if you are. You see, there's a choice, and in this passage, we see both the risks and the stakes involved in taking up your cross. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you take your cross knowing the risks involved, and number two, you take your cross knowing the stakes involved. Let's look at the risks in verses 24 through 39. This section, these verses, define discipleship from the time Jesus spoke these words right up until his second coming. They are applicable to all disciples in all ages. There are risks involved. Family may disown me. Men may persecute me. I might even suffer martyrdom. 
And so Jesus begins to spell out the risks of discipleship. He says in verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Beelzebub was a local Canaanite deity. Don't ask me why, but the Jews adopted the name as a way of identifying Satan. It was their term for the devil. The opponents of Jesus accused him of being in league with the devil. His point here was that as his disciple, you can expect to be treated just like he was. If they accused him of being in league with the devil, they'll accuse you of being in league with the devil. I was called the devil once by a believer. A couple once tried to hold a prayer meeting to cast a demon out of my wife. At the time, those things were somewhat troubling, but in light of what Jesus said, I'm feeling pretty good about it. It's a badge of honor. But please, I've already been through that. You don't need to call me a devil again. Uh, Verse 26, therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Now, the sense of this in context is that the opponents of the gospel try to cover and hide the truth by their accusations and attacks, but God will see to it that his truth is revealed and made known in every generation. In every generation, there's an effort to defeat the gospel by antagonizing its messengers. God's word marches on victoriously through the centuries. I remember um, years ago when, remember, before Nixon went to China and no one knew what was going on in China, it was closed off to the rest of the world and there were fears about the church in China that maybe the communists had strangled out the church and then when China began to be opened up again, what did we find? There were millions upon millions of secret believers in underground churches in China. And so no matter how much the devil comes against the gospel of Jesus Christ trying to persecute men and antagonize men and silence them, the gospel marches on. That's what these verses are about. He says in verse 27, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Jesus is simply saying that I have taught you as your teacher these things personally, now you go and teach others. For us, This would include our devotions, our Bible study, the verses that the Holy Spirit brings to our memory. In short, it is everything we are taught by God as his followers we are to share. By their accusations and attacks, men seek to make you afraid to share God's word that he has given to you. Instead, he says, share it in the light. That means just be open about it. It should be very natural. If you get an opportunity, he says, preach it from the housetops. Now, in those days, Their housetops were flat roofs that served as porches. Many places in the world are like this uh, still today. And he was saying that you should shout it from the housetops. Or, you know, sometimes it's just good to be loud. You want to have a a testimony sometimes. Maybe you're out with a Christian brother or a Christian sister. Just, Just start talking about Jesus in a loud way at Starbucks or wherever you happen to be. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, we used to fake out, you know, we used to fake like one of us wasn't a Christian. And, and we'd say, well, really, what do you, you know, who is this Jesus? And then the other, you know, and stuff. And it's, it's kind of fun. Well, I thought it was kind of fun, but. <laughs> Have you ever been to first service? <laughs> now I know, yeah. Too many of you have been to first service. And ladies and gentlemen, it's 11 o'clock. This is not first service, just letting you know. 
I know, it's impossible to laugh before nine, but uh, anyway. Verse 28, in other, well, anyway, in other words, you should lo- be looking for everything, everything should be like a pulpit to you. You should be looking for ways to witness. Uh, he says in verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who is able to destroy both a body and soul in hell. Did he just say kill, by the way? Yes, yes he did. This disciple stuff just got a lot more serious. Now there's two truths we wanna draw out from this verse. Number one, hell is a real place. Jesus thought so anyway. And number two, there will be people there with both their body and soul being destroyed, a word which describes an ongoing punishment rather than a quick annihilation. The worst they can do to a disciple is kill you. It's sad when you are warning them about hell, not willing they should go there to be punished for eternity, and people respond with violence against you. It's ridiculous, really. But because the God of this world has blinded their eyes, and because men love sin uh, and darkness rather than the Savior, here you are offering them freely the gospel of Jesus Christ that will save them for eternity and men instead want to do violence to you and given the opportunity would kill you if they could. It's a good thing we live in a country where they're not doing that yet but in the rest of the world, 100,000 Christians or more are killed every year for their faith. It's not just that they die, they're killed for their faith around the world. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. I I read in one place 16 of these copper coins were worth one penny. Imagine the jingling in your pockets in those days. Are you one of those guys? Girls don't do it too much, but you're one of those guys that keeps coins in your pocket and jingles? I want to punch you in the pocket when that... (laughs) There's nothing more annoying than that except when I do it and then my wife tells me, why are you doing that, you know, so. Now your hairs aren't just counted. That would be easy for some of you. I mean, I, I could do that in, in 20 or 30 minutes. Your hairs each have their own number. And so from the time you're, you know, you have hair throughout your life, when your hair falls out, and it's replaced. Not that the follicle has a number. Your hair, that hair is a brand new number. And, and, and God is aware of the numbers. That's, it's a, it's a, a statement of, of intimacy, obviously. That's how involved God is in knowing you and your life. And so whether it's a sparrow falling or one hair from your head falling, what happens is within the will of God. Now let's take a, a little side trail here for a minute, a rabbit trail. God is sovereign and he directs his creation providentially. By that I mean uh, like we give our prophecy updates. Um, We're not exactly sure how everything is going to work out exactly in terms of the technologies or the timing, but we are sure that everything God said was going to happen in the book of the Revelation and in the other unfulfilled prophecies will happen exactly as he says it would. And God works within history and among human beings to move us towards that end, and that is God's providence. God has within his sovereignty given man a free will. That being the case, there is to me anyway a big difference between saying something is God's will versus saying it is within God's will. 
Here's what I mean. Take the devastating typhoon in the Philippines. Last count I heard, there was more than 4,000 dead. I'm sure it's going to rise. Was that God's will in the sense that he personally determined to send the typhoon to those people, or was it within the will of God who graciously has allowed mankind a measure of free will that has plunged all of his creation into a state of sin that he is going to one day totally redeem? God created the whole universe and the laws of nature. Most natural disasters are a result of those laws at work. Hurricanes and typhoons and tornadoes are the results of divergent weather patterns colliding. Earthquakes are the result of the Earth's plate structure shifting. A tsunami is caused by an underwater earthquake. Now, the Bible says that Jesus holds all of nature together. We know that God can prevent natural disasters. We know that God can influence the weather. We know that God causes natural disasters sometimes as a judgment against sin, but is every natural disaster a punishment from God? The answer to that is absolutely not. In much the same way that God allows evil people to go on committing evil acts, God allows the earth to reflect the consequences sin has had on creation. There's a passage in Romans 8 that says the whole creation is groaning. It's been plunged into disarray because of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. And so um, it is within the will of God that these evil acts and these tragedies occur. It is not, I, I, I stop short at saying that it is God's will that he personally decided that he was going to destroy this city. But it's within his will. It's still a mystery to us because we know that God, you know, you say, well, could God have stopped that typhoon? Yes, he could stop all typhoons. He could stop all hurricanes. He could stop all weather patterns. In fact, pretty soon you get to the point where God could have a perfect world, could he not? Well, he did at one time. And then what happened? said, Adam, Eve, You're gonna have to have one choice and one choice only because we can't have love unless there's free will. Love cannot be forced. I'm gonna give you the opportunity to choose. They chose badly. That's an understatement. And we've inherited that sin and the earth is struggling. God is going to restore all that. He sent Jesus Christ into this world of sin and suffering and death to die a sinner's death and rise from the dead so that men might be saved. You know the real culprit in the suffering of the world is not God. It's everyone who won't get saved. Because God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. And so God waits and he waits, and as he waits, oftentimes these naturally occurring events, they, they kill people. People die, and they go into a Christless eternity because they refuse the gospel. But Jesus Christ came and he said, look at me. Look to me and be saved. Now back to our text. God cares for his followers more than he does sparrows, but believers do fall in the sense that you might be killed for your faith. It's in the context of dying for your faith that he says, I care more about you than sparrows that fall. One commentator put it this way. He says, God will not waste the life of even one of his soldiers. In a battle, in a war, soldiers fall. I've been using the example of D-Day in World War II. The Allied commanders knew there would be massive casualties both before, during, and after the landing, but the strategy in total worked to end the war. I'm sure it was their hope that no soldier's life would be wasted for the greater good, but they knew 
that soldiers would fall and that men would die. You are of more value means that you can trust that should a believer fall in death, it's to a great good that God is doing. Most likely you will not know the extent of the good. In fact, it won't make much sense to you at all. It is then that you want to look at a sparrow and remember God's intimate knowledge of every life. Verse 32, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. I think it's important we keep this in its context. He's talking about believers being persecuted for their faith and facing death. And so think of a martyr being given the opportunity to save their life by denying Jesus and refusing to do so. If you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is public domain, it's free, it's a great book, uh, giving some of the stories of the early martyrs of the church age. And almost always they're asked to recant. All they need to do is, is you know, uh, reject Jesus Christ and they can live. And they all say, yeah, how could I do that? And they die horrible, heinous deaths as a result. That's what the Lord is talking about here. Now, does this additionally mean for us that if we're not good enough that Jesus will, in the end, deny us entrance into heaven? Well, as to those kinds of day-to-day failures and backslidings, one commentator wrote this. I thought it was insightful. He said, the Lord will not confess the confessing Judas, nor deny the denying Peter. The traitor who denied him by his acts is denied. We confess Christ by genuine and earnest testimony for him. We deny him by every unchristian deed. And so this author's perspective is that um, if you want to apply this verse to your life, uh, he's not really talking about being a timid Christian or things like that. At the same time, we don't want to be among those who are in any way denying Christ. I mean, do you want to be a, a Christian who denies Christ? Do you want to be Peter denying his Lord three times? Do you want to be Peter on the day of Pentecost preaching the gospel and seeing thousands of individuals saved? Uh, Obviously, you want to be Peter volume two. The Peter reboot is who you want to be, and that's available to you. Now, verse 34, do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Jesus came to make peace between God and man. He wanted to do it by solving the problem of our separation from God as sinners. And so we can have peace with God and know the peace of God. But far too often when we come into the peace of God and we confess him to our families, instead of peace, there's conflict. Many of you, if I asked you to raise your hand, would say, yeah, when I got saved, it was rough in my family. Either my immediate family with my husband or my wife or my children or my parents or my extended family. It, it just, you know, the, and some of you experience greater conflict than others. Some of you are still experiencing that conflict. Some of you are gonna experience it big time here in a week or so as Thanksgiving comes, you know. Go for it. And then Christmas after that. And so it's a reality. Jesus, you know, it just, you want to confess Christ, you're going to create conflict. Verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
Would you say your love for Jesus Christ is greater and deeper and more intense than your love for your husband or your wife or your children or your extended family? One of the possible meanings of worthy is due reward. If you love anyone or anything more than Jesus and live accordingly, you are not due any reward from him. Now, this seems harsh. When you first read this, you think, man, this sounds rough. But know this, only by loving Jesus with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength can you truly ever love and serve anyone else. Any other love apart from the love of God is selfish by definition, and the other person becomes an idol in your life. I thought I was in love when I got married. I was in love. It was a worldly kind of love, an earthly kind of love. A year and a half later, I wanted badly to be out of love. And then I met Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And then I loved my wife for the first time ever in reality because I love the Lord. And so it's not, you know, everybody, people look at this and they read it kind of, you know, what's with Jesus? Well, I'll tell you what's with Jesus. You can't love somebody else until you love Jesus. Not the way that they deserve to be loved. You know, the Lord, he comes to husbands and he says, I want you to love your wife the way I love the church. Well, you can't do that unless you love him. It's impossible. It requires the Holy Spirit. And even then, we're struggling. He comes to the wife and he says, I want you to, to love and respect your husband and, and, and submit to him. <laughs> yeah, like that's gonna happen apart from the Holy Spirit. And so there is no real love apart from the love of God first coming into your heart and life. Otherwise, it's just selfishness at some point. Even if you feel like you're giving of yourself for the other person, it's still a selfishness because you're feeling good about how much you sacrifice for the other person. And that person is an idol to you. And so only by loving Jesus will you love others. Verse 38, he who does not take his cross and follow after me, he's not worthy of me. Let's get a little deeper into what the disciples would have thought, what would have flashed in their mind when he used the cross as his illustration. Crucifixion was a most disgraceful form of execution. I mean, today we, try, we argue about capital punishment and we try and talk about whether it's humane and we try and make it as humane as possible. Hey, the Romans wanted to make it as disgusting as possible, as a deterrent. It was usually reserved for slaves and foreigners and revolutionaries and the worst criminals. Flogging was done before every crucifixion. It was part of the crucifixion. The flogging was intended to bring a victim to a state just short of death. Also, it hurt an awful lot. The whip had iron balls tied a few inches from the end of each leather thong on the whip. Sharp bones would be tied near the ends. The iron balls would cause deep bruising while the leather thongs would cut into your skin. After a few lashes, the muscles would begin to be cut. Blood loss was considerable, and the pain would have put the victim in a state of shock. After the flogging, the victim would carry his own crossbar called the patibulum from this flogging post inside the city to the crucifixion area outside the city walls. This patibulum weighed anywhere from 75 to 125 pounds. The crossbar would be balanced on the victim's shoulders and their arms would be tied to it. In this position, if the victim tripped or fell, they could not use their arms to break their fall and they would likely fall face first into the ground. The upright part of the cross called the stipe was permanently mounted in the crucifixion area. Once it was reached, the victim would be nailed to the crossbar. The nails would be driven through the wrists, not through the palms, as these would not support the body weight. 
Crossbar would then be raised and placed on the upright post where the victim's heels would be nailed by an additional nail to the post. And just to add insult, the victim was always crucified naked. Once crucified, a victim would live for a period ranging from a few minutes or hours to a few days. How long he lived depended mostly on how severe the flogging was. If no one claimed the body, it would be left on the cross to be eaten by predatory animals. The family could, however, claim the body for burial. In this case, the Roman soldier would pierce the chest with a sword or spear to make sure the victim was dead. Now, you and I, I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, get an emotional response or anything, but when you and I think of the cross, we think of jewelry. We think of, you know, a, a more of an ornate cross, uh, something that we display proudly. When Jesus said, hey, guys, you're going to have to take up your cross, this was the most horrifying image you could imagine. They didn't really understand that Jesus was going to be crucified yet, or why. And so it's, it's a very, very powerful statement. Now, we're blessed to have a lot of military personnel, a lot of law enforcement, a lot of firefighters. All of you put your life on the line every day, and we think you are worthy due reward from us, even if it is only our high praise. It therefore should not surprise us that we are, as believers, asked to put our lives on the line every day for Jesus Christ and the gospel. I mean, we admire people who put their lives on the line. It, you know, the, the fireman who's going into the fire while we're running out. We think, man, that's fantastic. And Jesus says, hey, same thing, but in a spiritual sense with the gospel, because there are people that need to be plucked out of the fire. And you need, in a sense, to rush in and give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, of course, it's worth risking our lives to be Christians. You are worthy, your due reward to the extent you take your cross. There seems to be a choice involved. It's not the choice of whether or not you're gonna confess or deny Christ at the point of martyrdom. Very few of us will ever face that moment, thankfully. In fact, one author said, it's easier to die for Christ as a martyr than to live for him every day. This is a choice in terms of how you live and whether Jesus is truly priority number one with you. Verse 39, he who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. This is Jesus saying your spiritual life should be uh, to take priority over and should drive your physical life. It is in the day-to-day that Jesus invites you to take your cross, to live as if your life was forfeited to him and you and your resources were all available to him to be used to confess him before men. It's up to each of us to determine where we have and where we have not taken our cross. You know, no one can tell you, um, you know, how, how good a cross taker you are. But what we get from this, you know, Jesus said, I think all of us, I mean, you know, we've been in this together for a long time, and, and I know that all of us, we want to give testimony for Jesus Christ. We want to be witnesses for the Lord. We want to really live this Christian life. And from time to time, we need to think, okay, Lord, so you're the number one priority. If I was asked by the man in the street, what are your priorities? I would say Jesus Christ, then my family, and then my employment. And, and you'd be right on, and you'd believe that, and, and all of us would say that. Uh, every now and then, we need to revisit Jesus and say, now, Jesus, since you are my priority, you're my number one priority, what am I really doing to spread the gospel? What am I giving? Where am I going? What am I saying? 
You know, have I explored some new ideas about how people can know that I'm a Christian? Yeah, you've probably heard the saying, and it sounds very spiritual. It's mystical and spiritual. You've heard the saying, share the gospel, use words if necessary. Have you heard that? It's like a famous devotional thing, and you think, whoa, man. Somebody, uh, I was reading the other day, they said that would be like saying, feed people, use food if necessary. You know, there is, the gospel is a message that Jesus Christ is the son of God, that he died for your sins, he rose from the dead, and that you can be saved. And so we need to continue to be exploring different things, different ways. You know, nobody has to quit their job. Nobody has to, you know, change their life. Some, some people do, I mean, as the Lord would lead, obviously. But uh, all of us need to go into it every day with the mentality that, Lord, since you are my number one priority, how are we gonna live this out today? What, what are we gonna do today that might get the gospel promoted uh, and, and, and Lord, how are you gonna fill me with the spirit to do that? And so that's, that's our assignment every day. Now, in the last verses, you take your cross knowing the stakes involved. These closing verses are interesting in that although they continue to speak to you as a disciple, they introduce a receptive audience. All of a sudden, we're not talking about being persecuted and dying. We're talking about people who receive the message and get saved. Verse 40, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. The meaning of receives is obviously more than just taking you in and offering hospitality. It means they receive the message of the gospel. Jesus was sent by the Father to offer forgiveness of sins and eternal life to the human race. It's a message for all human beings that becomes effective in saving them when it is received by repentance and faith. Verse 41 he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. Whoever gives one of these little ones, talking about the disciples, only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Now, a prophet's reward or a righteous man's reward is not eternal salvation. We don't earn heaven by anything we do for God or for any of God's messengers. We rather share in the blessings they receive through the word of God. We receive eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, but here Jesus is speaking of the blessings with which God graciously rewards the fruit of our faith, our good works. Listening to this, the disciples would be encouraged that there would be those individuals who would receive the Lord and it would be evidenced by their good works that follow and are the fruit of salvation. In other words, men and women would be saved for eternity. They'd be rewarded in this life with grace sufficient to walk with the Lord and in heaven by Jesus as his good and faithful servants. And so after all this talk about the risk, Jesus said the stakes are high because some men are going to go to hell, but others are going to receive your message and be saved. There's a heaven to gain and a hell to avoid, and that's why I'm saying the stakes are high. There can be nothing more vital than to determine eternal destiny, yet for the most part, people go about their business ignoring it, or they're deceived by some religious notion they grew up with or they embraced that tell them it will all somehow work out in the end. Enter the gospel. 
You're a helpless sinner. You're an enemy of God. You're condemned from the womb for hell. Jesus, as the God-man, has taken your place by dying on the cross to satisfy the holiness of God against sin. He offers you, in an exchange for your sin, his righteousness by which God can justify you and accept you into heaven. It's a message entrusted in each generation one by one to those who hear it, who believe it, and receive the Lord and then share it with someone else. It's up to them, it's up to us to share it. To do so effectively, we must be cross-takers who love Jesus above and beyond all else, even our very lives. It's a spiritual battle for men's eternal souls. There are risks involved, but the stakes are too high to hold back and the rewards are too great to pass. One additional thought, we've been thinking about Jesus taking the cross, or excuse me, about taking the cross as if we must be willing ultimately to die for Jesus, and that's true. But we must also understand that taking the cross means we have already died to sin and self. We've died and been buried with Jesus Christ. This is a spiritual truth. Uh, When you come to know Christ, it's as if you have died, been buried, and risen from the dead. That means you have power, resurrection power, the resurrection life, to do the things that Jesus says. And so as we get to the end of all this and we're thinking, I, I just, I've never even, uh, you know, I, you read this, I, even I read this and, and I say, man, I don't even, I don't know if, what kind of a disciple I am. What am I giving God? What am I doing for the Lord really? Uh, you know, when you read some of this and you read Fox's Book of Martyrs and stuff, And then the Lord says, hey, it's not about what you're doing or giving and all that. It's about my leading and following that. It's about being filled with the Holy Spirit because we can't do any of this naturally. And I think sometimes we think, well, Lord, you know, I tried. I'm doing the best I can. And the Lord says, yeah, it's not about that. It's about you letting me live in you and through you. It's about you just saying, Lord, I want you to be my top priority. And then right where you're at, letting the Lord explore different ways that you can be sharing him. Everything that you have and own, that's the Lord's pulpit in order to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And um, let's, yeah, we need to be creative about it. I remember when I used to work at the title company, um, I got in so much trouble giving out tracts but I would, th- you know, and then I'd wear Christian ties and, you know, and all that. And, and my employer, it was because, obviously, because I'm such a wonderful guy, you know, that they never actually fired me. Um, but uh, they'd call me into the office and say, hey, we're paying you to sell title insurance, not to spread the gospel. I'd say, oh, okay. That's fine, great. And then I'd think of a different way of doing it hey, you realize that we're paying you, yes, oh, sorry about that, you know, and stuff. And uh, it just, it worked out. Now, I know other people, they've, they, they lose their jobs. I'm not telling you to go out and lose your job. But if we read this stuff correctly, somebody must lose their job at some point over the gospel, right? I mean, this is serious stuff because people are, people are dying, they're going to hell. So, let the Spirit lead you. I guess that's what I'm saying. Don't let anyone else judge you. And don't look to someone else and think you're either doing better or worse than them. Just you spend time with the Lord. In fact, right now, as Gino comes up, we'll have that reflection time. Spend some time with the Lord and say, Lord, speak to me about how you can use me more in the power of your spirit to be the disciple I really want to be. And then see where that lands us. Amen?